You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess together that you are love. We ask you this morning that you would continue to love us as we turn together to your word. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the truth of God and would you allow it to press down into the very uh, deepest recesses of our heart, our mind, and our soul. We ask God that you would say over us a word, that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear you and that we would be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third, and I'm grateful to have you here. I'm grateful to welcome you to worship this morning. Uh, over the last couple of months, we have been working through a series uh, called The Questions of Jesus, and we've been learning a lot. The Questions of Jesus, they do a lot of things. They encourage us. Uh, they challenge us. They convict us. They compel us. Uh, they rebuke us sometimes. And what we've been learning is that more than anything else, the reason why Jesus asks so many questions, literally uh, more than 300 in the New Testament, is because he wants to know people. He wants to know you. He wants to know me. And he wants to make himself known to others. And so this week, we are ending this series by looking at another post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. And the question for this week is, do you love me? And the encounter we're going to read is from the last a time in the book uh, of uh, the Gospel of John where uh, anyone had an encounter, his last encounter, his last words to his disciples. You can read along with me on page six of your bulletin as I read John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, well, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I, I was an English major at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and it stuck with me. And so one of my favorite poets is Elizabeth Barrett Browning. There should be a picture of her there. Before you judge her, I am told that that style was all the rage in the 1830s. <laughs> she was born in 1806, oldest of 12 children, began writing poetry at the age of six. By the time uh, 1830s, 1840s came along, she was one of the most influential English poets of the Victorian era. She was the first female poet to be considered poet laureate. She uh, lost to Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, 
just to give you a sense of her scope and influence. She had a profound impact on many other writers, such as Emily Dickinson, Edgar Allan Poe, and Virginia Woolf. More than 100 years later, things that she wrote are still a part of our common vernacular. Have you ever heard someone say, how do I love thee, let me count the ways? Yeah, that's one of her poems. It comes from one of her Portuguese sonnets. She was an incredible uh, woman, an incredible poet. But another reason why her life stands out to me is because it was filled with suffering. suffering. She had a, a very tragic life. Most of her life, she was beset by many different illnesses. Uh, she was frail most of her life. And her father, his name was Edward Moulton Barrett, was a domineering figure. Actually, he forbid any of his 12 children to ever marry. But the problem for Elizabeth is that she eventually met and fell in love with another writer, Robert Browning. And so they ran off, got married in secret, and moved to Italy. Once the news that she had gotten married was discovered, her father excommunicated her from the family, disavowed her, forbid anybody from the family to interact with her. It shattered her. And so in the midst of that broken relationship, she did what she knew to do. The only thing that she knew to do, she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. For 10 years, she poured every ounce of her talent and craft into writing beautiful, poetic letters to her father, attempts to try to heal this broken relationship. And week after week, year after year, she received nothing in response. Until finally, one year before her father's death, she received a box in the mail from her father. You can imagine her excitement. Finally, finally, love is broken through. Finally, this relationship can be restored. And her excitement turned to anguish as she opened up the package to realize that every single letter she had ever written him was inside, sealed and unopened. Today, those letters are published and are considered to be among some of the most beautiful writings that we have of classic English literature. Despite all of her giftedness and talent, she could not bridge the chasm that remained between her and her father. Nothing that she did could heal that broken relationship. And I share her story with you this morning, not just because it's powerful, but because many years ago, when one of my counselors asked me, Derek, what do you really think God is like when you have sinned? What do, you, what do you think he's really like when you feel? How does he feel about you? What does he think about you? I told him, I think God is like Edward Moulton Barrett. That he is disappointed and disgusted. And the, the gap and the chasm between us can't be bridged. If I'm honest, church, there have been long stretches of my life where I've struggled deeply to believe that I'm loved by God. Two years in my late 20s, about two years, where I didn't pray, I didn't ask for forgiveness, I didn't talk to God at all. I read the Bible twice during that time, I preached a lot, I built a huge ministry. But when it came to being alone with God and, and, to, and to dealing with the issues that, of my, my shame and my fear of him, it was just simply too painful to try to come to him. I knew what he thought about me and it wasn't good. And I've learned over the years as I've walked with others, as I've walked with a lot of you here, that I am not alone in that. 
it is common for people of faith to struggle and to believe that they are loved when they failed, when we're confronted with our sin, when it's the bold reality of, it, reality of it is in front of us, what it has done to us, what it can do to others. We don't struggle to believe God exists. It's worse. We believe that he exists, but that he does not love us. And it's in a moment like, like that. It's not a crisis of faith or doubt. It's a crisis of love. And it's in those moments, questions like this, the idea of, of Jesus saying, Derek, do you love me? Were, were devastating, terrifying. What does God do with failed disciples? Like really failed disciples. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the life of Peter. And this passage shows us that Jesus wants to heal his broken relationship with Peter. He wants to restore him to relationship to himself. And what I want you to do, church, is as we look through this together, I want you to know that Jesus goes about healing our relationships with him in the same way that he heals Peter's relationship with him. So, so who was Peter? Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He was marked by uh, passion and pride, always took his foot in the mouth. I love this about him. Makes me feel like I could be a disciple, right? Peter's always the one that's going to make a mistake in public. Uh, he's the one who told Jesus, uh, he had to be rebuked by Jesus because he told Jesus he shouldn't go to the cross. Uh, he's the disciple that refused to wash Peter's, uh, wash, uh, let Jesus wash his feet. And at the end of Jesus' life, in particular, he was the one who in front of everyone else said, all of these other disciples might abandon you, Jesus, but not me. I'm the one who will stay true. It's like he was saying, Jesus, I love you more than these disciples do. And so you know the tragic irony of Peter's story. When Jesus is arrested, Peter finds himself in a courtyard. He's, he's called warming his hands by a fire of coals. And three times people ask him if he knows Jesus. And three times he says, I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. Three times he denies Christ. So what we're going to look in this text this morning is how does Jesus deal with Peter's failure. How does he heal this relationship? First thing that we're going to see is that Jesus restores Peter to his true identity. He restores us to our true identity. How does this happen? How do you see this? Well, first, you find that Jesus welcomes Peter. In order to really appreciate this, uh, you, you got to know what happened just before this passage. At the very beginning of our text, it talks about how they were finished eating. Well, well, after Peter denies Christ, he goes back to his old way of life, old way of life, just like the rest of us. He, he's fishing. Uh, he's supposed to be a fisher of men. He's gone back to being a fisher of fish. And him and the disciples are on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. And they've had no luck. They haven't caught a thing. Then this mysterious guy on the shore yells out, hey, you might want to try putting your, notes, your, your nets on the other side of the boat. The disciples follow his advice. And when they do, their nets become overwhelmed with the catch straining to get the nets back in the boat. And it, that is the moment when they realize, oh, wait a second, we, this seems familiar. It's, that's Jesus. And Peter realizes that that's Jesus on the beach post-resurrection. And he just jumps into the water, swims to shore. And when he gets there, Jesus is by himself sitting around a fire. He is baking some bread and ready to serve them a breakfast of some fish. It's beautiful. The love of Jesus seeks 
Peter out. Not to scold him, not to shame him, but to welcome him. He cooks him breakfast. Jesus is there. It's like he's saying, Peter, you may have abandoned me, but I have not abandoned you. You may be running for me. I am running towards you. Peter, you still belong to me. Do you know that, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is ready to do and to say the same thing to you? I don't care what you've done. Do you know that if you feel like you have failed Jesus so horribly, he couldn't possibly want you back, that you are wrong? You haven't. You can't. He is ready to welcome you. The second way we see how he restores him to his true identity, it's Jesus addresses the offense. He addresses the chasm. He doesn't ignore it. You know, when somebody really hurts you, you know this, if somebody really truly hurts you, you can't move back into real unity and real relationship with them unless you address the thing that's between you. You know that? If Jesus had welcomed Peter back and just ignored his denial, it would have been a false and superficial restoration. Wouldn't, wouldn't Peter always be wondering, does, well, does, really, does Jesus really want to welcome me back? Or is he just faking it? Does he remember? Does he know? Did somebody tell him? Maybe he doesn't know what I've done. Is Jesus just acting like things are fine and he's going he's gonna to find some kind of way to pay me back later? Is, is this fish poisoned? Like, is, is Jesus going to get me back now? How, how could he be confident if it's just ignored? You can't. In order for a relationship to be really restored, that offense needs to be addressed. And so that's what Jesus does. So let's look how he addresses the offense. This is really beautiful. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of subtle in the text. If you don't know Peter's story, you might miss some of it. But what's happening here is really purposeful on Jesus' part. Jesus is trying to remind Peter of his greatest failure. He is purposely recreating the scene of Peter's denial. You know, first, we see it this way. Jesus brings Peter back to a fire. You know, we don't just remember with our minds as human beings. Our brains are these beautiful, complex things. We remember with our whole bodies, our whole senses. You know, have you ever listened to a song and all of a sudden it takes you back to that moment in high school or that experience? Do you know what I'm talking about? I remember this powerfully. I was discipling a 19-year-old uh, guy at, at UVA, and he, he told me this. He said, Derek, I remember the last time my dad said that he loved me. I was 10 years old. I can still remember what the room smelled like. Isn't that powerful? We don't just remember with our minds. We remember with all of our senses. And what, what Jesus is doing here is he is actually creating, he's stimulating Peter's senses. He's creating a, a sensory reenactment. Right? There's a charcoal smoke. There's flame. There's heat. Jesus uses the same language the last time the truly verily, it's called the amen, amen construct. The last time that appears in the gospel of John is when? The moment before Peter denies Christ. He's using the senses and language to remind Peter of his denial. And what do you think Peter is thinking in this moment? He's at this fire with Jesus. It's, it's, it's not that hard to imagine that Peter is thinking, I I've been here before. And I think what Jesus is trying to say to him in this moment is our relationship may have been fractured over a fire, but now we are going to heal that relationship over one. And then Jesus, and then once he has fixed Peter in the sensory reality of his failure, he asks him three times, do you love me? 
So the first question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does Jesus do? Why, why does he say it this way? This is the only question that is changed a little bit from the others. Why do you love me? Or, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What Jesus is doing is he is, he is having Peter face his pride and his sin. Remember, Peter is the one who swore, Jesus, I love you more than these. When they leave you, I won't. And what is, what is really remarkable is Peter's response. Look, look closely. He does not say, yes, Lord, I do love you more than these. He doesn't do the Peter thing, some overcompensating response to prove to Jesus that he loves him. What does he say? He just says, you know that I love you. This is Peter humbled. This is Peter actually repenting. He's turning away from his pride and his boasting. And he is just confessing his love for the Lord. Jesus asked him a second time and then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The text says that third time was a step too far for Peter. It hurt. It hurt him. Why, why would Jesus say this three times? Definitely because he wants Peter to be reminded. And for every denial that he made publicly, he is giving, he's giving Peter a chance to reaffirm his love for Christ. He's redeeming that moment. It's beautiful, but it's necessary pain. This is, this is a pastoral loving pain. It's, it's like it's, uh, he, he is trying to tell Peter, I am present with you even in the moments of your greatest failure and shame. My love, Peter, was there with you and is there with you now in your shame and your brokenness. He, he's doing this not because he's mean. He's doing it because he wants to apply the balm directly to the center of the wound. If Jesus ignores the offense, he can't heal Peter. And so what is true for Peter is true for us, church, that if, if the love of God is going to find you, it has to find you in your shame. It has to find you in your failure or it will not find you. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't need to hear Peter say that he loves him three times. Peter needs to hear Peter say, that he loves Christ three times. It's, it's, in this, it's in this last response of Peter, I think that we begin to see his surrender, his surrender to the love of God, his surrender of, to, to be returned back to his true identity. His last response is this, look, you, you know every man's heart. And, and you know that I love you. What he's saying is, look, you know the hearts of men. My love for you, my even knowledge of my love for you, is, it's incomplete, it's flawed. I don't trust myself or even my own knowledge of you, my own knowing of you. I trust you, Christ, your love. And this is the Peter's true identity, not as one who loves God, but one who is first loved by God. And the same is true for you and me. These are true, we are ones who are loved deeply. Tim Keller puts it this way, Christianity is not religion or Irreligion, it is a third way of relating to God by grace. That is really hard to believe. We can't earn it. We can't unearn it. And so Jesus' goal in, in, in meeting us, welcoming us in our failure in, is this. He doesn't ignore it because he wants to restore you to your truest self. In order to come back into relationship with Jesus, Peter has to fully address what he's done, right? Right? 
But then he has to come to grips with who he is, and he is God's beloved. His failure is met by God's love. That's good news. So if we are to be restored to the love of God, church, then we, we have to allow ourselves, we have to let ourselves be found in our shame and our failure. This is not an idea. Everybody knows what you're supposed to say. Yes, God loves me. We're talking about in your real lived experience. And the way that we experience this is through, through confession and repentance. That's, that's what's happening in this text. Will God forgive you? Does God really want to restore? Does he really want to heal? Does he really want to bridge the gap between you? There's only one way to know, for real, and that's to go find out. That's to, that's to go and sit with Jesus and let his love seek you, welcome you, remind you, and restore you. And you. Derek, you don't know the things that I've done. I don't care what you've done. There's nowhere you can run that Jesus isn't going to be sitting there waiting for you, cooking some bread and some fish. He wants your presence. That's his heart for you and for me. God's ready to do that for you. This morning, he restored Peter. He can restore you. He can restore me. He welcomes us back to our truest selves. It's the first thing that we see. The second way that we see Jesus uh, healing his relationship with Peter is that he invites Peter into his mission. And he does the same thing for us. He invites us into his mission. So God restores Peter to his true identity as beloved, and then he asks him, invites him to join him in mission. We see this two ways. The most clearest way that we see it is through this threefold charge. So he asks him three questions. Peter answers twice, and then Jesus charges him three times, care for my sheep, feed my sheep, care for my sheep. Well, what does that mean? Well, what Jesus is trying to say here is, is, Peter, take care. Take good care of the dear ones that I've entrusted to you. And part of what Jesus is trying to say to us is that in being restored in love towards him, it should express itself by pouring ourselves out in love to others. Our love upwards becomes love outwards. We show Jesus' love by loving those that he loves. I love the way that, um, that uh, uh, Benner says this. He says that love has its roots in the triune God. Therefore, love always reaches out. So what does this look like for us? Who are the ones that Jesus calls us to feed? Who are the dear ones that he's entrusted to you? Your children, neighbors, parish members, clients, patients, students, friends, definitely your enemies, certainly the lost. I, can, I can't tell you a lot about sheep. I can tell you this. Uh, they are stupid. <laughs> they are dumb animals. Every shepherd will tell you that that is their defining quality. They're also stubborn. They're smelly. They're messy. There are stories in the Bible. How do you get a sheep back to the flock? You have to break its legs, throw it over your shoulders and drag it back. It's not going to be easy. Who, who are these people that Jesus is asking to you leave? Who are the ones? He wants the expression of your belovedness to pour out in love to others. And how do you feed them? Not just who they are, but, but, but what does it mean for you to feed them? You care for them. You protect them. You love them. You teach them. But what Jesus says to Peter here essentially is, I want you to love them in the way that I have loved you. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking you and I to do as well. As we are restored to him 
and propelled and invited into his mission of love. And so this is a hard part of the passage for me. Jesus takes people at least as qualified as Peter. And those are the ones he invites into mission to love other sinful, broken human beings. People who fail spectacularly, but are surrendered to his love. Um, I, I, my entire adult life, I've been involved in leadership and leadership development. And that's one of the things that makes this passage um, extremely difficult for me, uh, because this is the worst leadership decision ever. At anybody, anybody who's supervised anybody else, any boss knows this. Uh, you're trying to tell me that here is this person who's failed utterly and completely to the uttermost, and you restore him to the most important position of, 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 of love and ministry and influence without a performance plan? Like, there's nothing to point to in Peter's life here other than the fact that he is surrendering to Jesus' love to prove he will not do this again. How is he going to earn it? How is he going to demonstrate that he's responsible? How is he going to demonstrate that he's capable? Even our mission, even the work of our mission is a gift of grace. We can't earn that either. It's the people like this, deeply loved failures, who have surrendered themselves to the love of God. These are the ones that Jesus gives his mission. And so if you have been res restored to Jesus in love, brothers and sisters, you will be restored to mission. Wherever there is love, there is mission in God's heart. Second way we see this is, is how Jesus tells Peter to follow him. In verses 19 and 22, we find out that where there is love, there is a mission. I just said that, right? Well, now we find out that wherever there is a mission, there is a cross. Wherever there's love, there's a mission. Wherever there is a mission, there's a cross. Jesus reminds Peter of his true identity, restores him to the true mission of love, and then he tells Peter, you are going to die. This is literally going to kill you. That's what it means. It says, stretch out your hands. It's referring to the way in which uh, Peter will be uh, killed by crucifixion. How is this good news? <laughs> Why do people sign up to do this? Why would Peter say yes? This time, it's not going to just pressure you to deny me. This time, following me will cost you your life. If you're going to follow me, you've got to follow me into my death. And this is one of the truest things about discipleship, about following Jesus. Every, discipleship is always a kind of martyrdom. We call it the cruciform life here. Following Jesus is always marked by the way of death, self-denial. If, if it feels like death and you don't want to do it, there's a good chance Jesus might be asking you to do it. Death is the greatest failure. Is there any failure greater than that? Why, why does this have to be the way? That's a legit, why, why does this have to be the way? I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because our attachment to our sin is too great to be overcome by our willpower. We can't, we can't grunt it through. We need radical heart change. And so Jesus only changes radically. It's through death and resurrection. 
I love that our passage doesn't leave us there, though. The passage also tells us that there is something on the other side of death, and it is glory. The text tells us that, that, that this dying on Peter's part will bring God glory. Death brings God glory. He is somehow in his heart especially glorified when our seemingly shameful deaths are transformed by him. When we fail in ways that allow him to restore us to our identities and and propel us into mission with him, he brings special glory. How is this hopeful? What is hopeful about this? What's hopeful is this. Jesus is not a teacher. This isn't Rabbi Jesus. This is Jesus, the risen Christ. There is only one person who has come through the failure of death and made it through to the other side to see glory. And what Jesus Christ is saying to his disciple Peter is what he's saying to you and me this morning, that that there are these horrible things are going to happen to you when you follow me. You are going to suffer. You're going to die to yourself. But here's what you need to know. They are happening because you love me and I love you and you are my disciple. Not because you failed me, not because you disowned me. And I have come out on the other side of death. And so will you. So follow me, Peter. Follow me into this future life of suffering, and I'm going to be there with you. And together, we are going to come through it, through death into life. And together, we're going to give my Father glory together. Amen? This is beautiful. Well, Peter's essentially. What Peter's hearing, what Jesus is saying to him is that, Peter, it is, it is how you fail that will give God great glory. And that is, that is at the center of this whole passage. If there's one thing driving here, it is, it is how we fail, Christians, not how we succeed that gives God the greater glory. It is in our failure that he welcomes us and seeks us in his love and restores us. It is in our failure that he finds us, that love transforms us, and it sends us out into mission with him. So I don't know how wide the chasm between you and God feels today. But I want you to know this. God is not like Edward Moulton Barrett. When he looks at you, his eyes light up. He loves you. He is crazy about you. Not filled with disgust or disappointment, but with love. He already has a fire set up somewhere for you. If you ever want to know, what is he like? He's just like this, just the way he is with Peter. He welcomed him back. He invited him to mission. and He does the same thing for you and for me. So my encouragement to you is is to is to follow Jesus. Come and find out that this is true. Meet with him. Go to him with your failures. Let him find you in the midst of your shame and listen to what he has to say. Receive the love that he has for you. And let him tell you that it is, it is, it is how you fail. It is in failing with him that you can bring him great glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We want this to be true. And we are grateful that it is. We want lives of love, lives transformed by love, restored to our true selves, uh, invited and propelled and compelled to mission. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us as people to, to surrender to your love 
and to let you lead us where we do not want to go. We thank you. We thank you that you have broken through the other side and that only those who follow you can have their failure and their deaths transformed into glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond to the sermon this morning through um, our prayers uh, of the people. And there are going to be a couple of moments as I read these prayers and pray these prayers where I will say, uh, Lord, in your mercy. And when I say that, your response is, hear our prayer. Let us pray together. Jesus, you are the incarnate love of God, the restorer of all things. So we ask you to redeem the, the damage to those living on the margins in our community, your church, to those who suffer a great deal under many doctors, those crushed by financial pressure, those who've lost jobs, broken in spirit, those who grieve from loss or sin. We ask you to heal, comfort, and repair. Would you restore, knit together, God, that which has been torn apart? Lord, in your mercy. Jesus, incarnate love of God, restore of all things, redeem the damage done to those living in the margins of our city, to the poor, those with no place to rest their head, to those trapped in, in systems of systemic or personal despair, to those in the Richmond public school system, teachers, administrators, families, children, to the stranger, the sojourner, the immigrant whom you love, to all those who are desperate for the fires of your hospitality while living in a foreign land, heal, comfort, and repair, knit together that which we've torn asunder. Lord, in your mercy. Jesus, incarnate love of God, restorer of all things, redeem the damage done to those living in the margins of our world, to the oppressed, the destitute, the vulnerable, to the defenseless, those who live against and and under the rule of tyrants, uh, Lord, those who can do nothing against the fury of natural disaster, to those living in and on the precipice of war, to the refugee, to your persecuted church, to all who long for the respite of shalom, we ask you to heal, comfort, and repair. Would you knit together, God, that which we have torn asunder? Lord, in your mercy, and gathering our prayers into one, let us boldly pray as those who are loved by God. That prayer that our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.